Well, I wish you a Merry Christmas again. And um, this is not meant to be some a regular um, long message, but enough for us to be in the Word and to get some food for our uh, for the Lord's Day and, and for our Christmas here. Now, Christmas for Christians is really all about the very Word Christ. He is celebrating the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. I mean, you know can appreciate sometimes people can be a little bit dramatic in the wrong ways um but you know you appreciate it. it was you know driving around and you see the you know place this is you know maybe it's lit up and it says christmas but christ is you know maybe lit up a little more than than the rest and but i think that's trying to really help us to remember oh that's right christmas is about christ um and so we want to remind ourselves that here even this morning as we dive into the word. Now, the passage we chose to really highlight was that was a whole chapter in the gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter one. So if you want to turn there, uh, we started last week looking at this and I won't really go over anything that I talked about last week. So if you want to know about it, you can go listen on, online that way, but we're going to finish it this morning. And it's all about the birth of the savior king. And this is an appropriate title for Jesus. He is the Savior King. There are lots of kings that have come, but only one could be truly titled the Savior King. And by that, I mean Savior of the whole world, King of the whole world. Now, what do you notice, first of all, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, that it says the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then it gives you a bunch of genealogy. We looked at that last week. The first 17 verses are just this big genealogy, and it's really connecting Jesus back to David. Who was David? He was a king. There was a prophecy made. And it told David that someday there would be a one who would sit on your throne, but he would establish a kingdom forever, Second Samuel 7. So it was important that those people there in Israel know this is that one. This is that king. Why do that? To demonstrate that he has the right to sit on the throne of God's people. And let me show you something that Matthew does to connect us to this next section so that you can see that this is one thought here. If you will look at it, or at least listen, verse 18 Actually, it's even there in your notes. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. Notice that word birth. That is the same Greek word identical that is translated genealogy in chapter 1, verse 1. In other words, Matthew wants to give us another genealogy. I've given you one already. I want to give you another one. You say, well, what is this? Well, sometimes uh, this kind of works this way. In fact, in Genesis, it works this way. The first chapter was all about the whole of creation. And then in Genesis chapter 2, he goes into that one day. And that's sort of what he does here. So he kind of narrows it down. But the way you need to understand this is this. He is connecting where... The first genie, the genealogy in the first 17 verses is connected to David. This one is connected to another. 
Who's he, who's he connected to? God. God himself. God the Son. God the Son. Will you notice how many times that he is called Son in these verses, in verses 18 through 25? The Son, the Son, the Son. God the Son. In verses 1 through 17, the son of David, he's a man. In verses 18 through 20, 25, the son of God, he's God the son. What's Matthew's point? That is this, Jesus is both man and he's divine. He's both man and God. The math doesn't work out for you and me. We don't have two natures. He does. So that makes him different. Now, in one sense, Hebrews 2 tells us he was made like his brethren. He's like us. So when we say that he was born a baby, we don't mean that he came out glowing in the dark. You know, he didn't come out with a halo. You know, there wasn't anything like that. And although I love that song, No Crying He Makes, I'm going to say there's a good chance he cried when he came out of there. It's probably, I have to, well, you're right, let's go, you know. You know, it's been dark in there for a while, let's go. I'm the light. Now that is a miracle, though. And think about that. God, man, one. And what we're going to see in our text are a bunch of miracles, really, Strung together. And and to get us there, I'd like to share a statement made by Thomas Watson. And he made this statement in the 1600s. So, it comes to you just a little bit crusty, but it's a good one. And this, I'm I'm calling it the chain of miracles. And it's a little long, but listen to this. Because it's going to help us to get an understanding of our section. Quote, the incarnation of Christ, Catina Aurea, a golden chain made up of several links of miracles. For instance, that the creator of heaven should become a creature, that eternity should be born, that he whom the heaven of heavens cannot contain should be enclosed in the womb, that he who thunders in the clouds should cry in the cradle that he who rules the stars should suck the breasts, that he who upholds all things by the word of his power should himself be upheld, that a virgin should conceive, that Christ should be made of a woman and of that woman which he himself made, that the creature should give a being to the creator that the star would give light to the sun, that the branch should bear the vine, that the mother should be younger than the child she bear, and that the child in the womb bigger than the mother, that he who is a spirit should be made flesh, that Christ should be without father and without mother, yet have both, without mother in the Godhead, without father in the manhood, that Christ being incarnate, should have two natures, the divine and human, and yet but one person? That the divine nature should not be unfused 
into the human, nor the human mixed with the divine, yet assumed into the person of the Son of God. The human nature, not God, yet one with God. Here is, I say, a chain of miracles, end quote. Amen, I say. In fact, when I came across that, I said, oh, that's pretty much all I'm going to say, you know, here this morning that I want to show you. Now, Christmas historically is about people living you can you can do the research yourself. It's about people living in a dark time. It's winter, cold, difficult to get food, no harvest, no life in the ground, just people struggling to make life work when it is the coldest and the darkest and the most lifeless. And you can read about this and see historically that the reason why, in fact, let me just say this. The ones who invented Christmas, so to speak, We're not Christians. We have no idea, actually, when Jesus was born. But right around December 21st, 22nd, 23rd, 24th, 25th, in that range, they celebrated a thing called winter solstice where they worshipped the fact that we need to have some hope and so let's try to infuse hope into us. And so they began to worship light church came around and said, hey, wait a minute. We have a better hope than that. We have a real hope. Jesus Christ himself said he came as the light of the world. So they picked December 25th and said, that's it. We will, work, we will celebrate the birth of Christ, the true light of the world every year. And so this is historically a time to hope for light and life and endurance through the toughest time of the year. And that's how the pagans saw it, and that's why you had so many folk stories that came about. And and when things get cold, you know how it is. The immune system goes down, and so you had more people at that time just getting sick and just a real struggle. And so people were looking anywhere for hope, and today it is different, obviously, with all the discoveries and inventions that we have. But I'll tell you, not really, though. We're still like Isaiah and I and the people who walk in the darkness. And whether you're talking politics, health, the educational system, government, social media, whatever your area is, you know it, that there is this cloud of darkness. You see it. And it is today more than ever. Kind of how I honestly look at when I look at the last couple of years and everything that has taken place and we're still living out the residual of things that took place with our election and government and all that and the COVID and the fallout of all that. And I think it is possible that the Lord allowed us to see all of that, to go through all of that so that we could see that there really is darkness out there. And I mean, even in in the church, there's darkness. This last week, the biggest controversy was this. Should the church meet when Christmas is on a Sunday? 
It was unbelievable. I kept having things sent to me, like, hey, people are saying this and people are saying that. I asked somebody yesterday, tell me, did you know that such and such a church that's down the street, they're not meeting today? I said, well, I didn't know that, and that's their deal. But I'll tell you what our deal is. We're just going to honor the Lord. We just, wanna, we just love, because we love Christ. We just want to be here. And the thinking was, shouldn't we encourage people to just be with families? I mean, isn't that what's important? But I say, what about God's family? What they were trying to do is have, they were trying to have a meta message. We care about families, but why don't you be the family of families with the Christian message? The the true Christmas message. So that's what's going on. If he's the meaning of life, if he's what's most important, then we need to meet to talk about them on a day like today, right? So, we are a people that walk in a great darkness. And we, we need Matthew 1, verses 18 to 25, don't we? Now, as you look at it, you're going to see this whole thing is really about convincing you and I that Jesus was not born in an ordinary, an ordinary way. He's no ordinary baby. There's something different here, and it's all tied into the about the virgin birth. It's all tied into the truth about Jesus being divine, the truth that Jesus is God, and that means that when Jesus was born, God came down to visit us, to live among us. Now, as we work through all of that with this text, I want you to see four highlights. Four, it highlights four activities that are crucial to understanding Christianity, that I'm going to take the time in a very short time to lay out, to understanding what it is that we celebrate at Christmas as Christians. Four highlights on what it took to have Christmas. Point number one, the Spirit's work. The Spirit's work. Now, what we need to see is the triune's God, the triune God's work in all of us. The triune God and His work in all of us. And you're going to see it clearly. And the first bit of work is by the Holy Spirit. Now follow the story. Look at it there in verse 18. Matthew says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. Here's the main details he says that you need to know about. Now I'm going to take you through this piece by piece, but the one thing I want you to latch on to is the Spirit's role in this. Okay? You read all throughout the Old Testament... And there have been some pretty supernatural births. I mean, who could forget Sarah giving birth at 90? Hello? That's amazing. That's supernatural. Definitely nothing natural about that. Hannah was married to Elkanah. You remember that? And they they tried. And and then finally the Lord opened the womb there. And... um, she knew that it was the Lord that did it. First Samuel 2, she credits God alone for getting that baby in her. And then you have Manoah and his wife. And, and remember that God gave them Samson. And over and over in the Old Testament, lots of times where the Lord causes someone who couldn't get pregnant to have a child. And listen to me carefully. It was all done outside of them being able to do something about it. In other words, God had to make that thing happen. That's why we call it supernatural. 
And they all knew it was the Lord. But here you have another situation like that, except massively different. Here is Mary. In all of those other cases, they wanted to have a child. Mary is engaged. She's not ready to have a child. She's like 12 and a half years old, 13 years old in that range. She's not even trying to get pregnant. Verse 18, look at it. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. Now, by that he means before they were legally able to have sexual intercourse. That's what it means. Before that, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now, what's happening here? Mary and Joseph are betrothed. You say, well, what does that mean? It means they're engaged, okay? You know, they've, been, they've given each other promise rings or something like that. I mean, they're just, they're getting close. But it, to be engaged, it means a little more than it does in our day and a little less. It's contractual, so it's a little more. It was absolutely pure, so it's a little less. Violation of that purity in the Old Testament days would be a stoning to death. So there are two words, by the way, related to getting married back then. You had this one word called the kiddushin in the in the Hebrew, and that meant betrothal, and it was you were legally bound to marry that person. And what would happen is the guy would come around and he'd drop a bag of money to the you know. The, the gal's parents. But the reason was not because, you know, he was trying to show that he was worthy. Actually, that money had practical purpose. The dad would set the money aside as a symbol to be a statement, to be kind of surety, if you will, while the young man built his home, or the home that it was, that was going to be for him and his wife. When the home was done at an appointed time, then that money would get directed, redirected towards, you know, their their marriage, their 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 future that's now that they're getting started. Okay. Usually lasted anywhere from six months to a year, but one thing was clear also during that year no touching. Okay? That was very clear. There was the sexual intercourse was for marriage. You say, what's the consequence if you violate that? Again, I mentioned in the old days, death, but things have gotten a little bit lax, so they're a little different now. But I will say this. The violation would be a public shaming you say, well, I can take a public shaming. Oh, that public shaming would mean you probably weren't getting any good job anytime soon. You weren't raising your family really on much because no one's going to have you. So that's how it was back then. Now, if one of them had sex outside the relationship with another person, then the violated spouse legally 
was allowed to divorce, and that's the word that they used for it. It was a legal binding thing. And what the spouse would do is either take it to a public hearing where all people could know, or they had a second way. They could do it secretly, you know, for a lot of different reasons, privately, without any um, public shaming at all. And they would do that with the proper legal authorities. Now, as I mentioned, it was, it was pretty common back then to, to get betrothed, to get engaged, 12 and a half years old, 13 years old. One can only imagine, right? Oh, boy. Not sure how we're preparing, you know, people to be, uh, I don't know if we're really prepared to be married at the age of 13 these days, right, in our society. Notice also it says before they came together. Now, the second part of the marriage was called the chupa. The kupa, or kupa, probably is the hard ch sound with the in the Hebrew. And this was a big time event. In John chapter two, you can read about an, ex, an illustration of that. Where remember Jesus at Cana, and that was when he turned the water into wine and all that. It was a big celebration. That was the kupa. Now this lasted for a week, and it happened at the home that was being built for that new marriage. Lots of people, more than just relatives, anyone you knew, lots of food, lots of wine, just a big deal. Okay? And at the end, everyone left, and the couple was remained in the house and to be able to consummate not only their marriage, but this new relationship and all that they were doing. So it says, look at it. Before they came together. You got it? This is before the chupa. Mary was found to be with child. Now it says it that way because Mary went to visit her cousin Elizabeth. Luke 1. Mary and Joseph were from a a place called Nazareth. And historically, by the way, the word Nazareth is a swear word. It's like gutter talk, okay? If you, you just tried to avoid using that word, talking about a person. Before Mary goes down, she, she goes down south to visit her cousin. And as this all happens, or before she even does that, her cousin, the angel Gabriel comes and visits her and lets Mary know some things. Luke 1, verse 30, don't be afraid, Mary. God wants to show grace to you how the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. It's going to cause you to be pregnant, to conceive. You're going to be carrying the holy child who's the son of God. So that caused Mary. She said, hey, I've got to get down and go see my cousin to talk about some stuff. It doesn't appear that she even let Joseph know about this information yet. And that caused her to go down and do that and to see the cousin and finds out the cousin's with child. She's going to have a baby named John the Baptist and her name's Elizabeth. And Elizabeth's baby leaps in her womb and it says Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit and there's all kinds of affirmation for Mary and they have just a wonderful time as she's just affirming this is all good, this is all God's plan. Now what? She comes back to Nazareth Joseph finds out she's with child. Oh boy. We've got an issue here. 
remember I, I told you that this, this point is all about the Spirit's work. And, you know, I was thinking to myself, what a funny way for the Spirit to work. Listen. But He does it all the time. He does it in your life. He does it in mine. Here you and I are trying to figure life out. And once we think we have it figured out, we forget. John 3, the Spirit blows like, like the wind that blows and comes and goes and you have no idea. We're all trying to figure God out. And you can't, aside from God's Word. What's He doing? What's he trying to do? I mean, he's really put this young couple in a tough spot. Engaged, pregnant, suspicious, right? Matthew 1, verse 19 tells us Joseph was a righteous man. In other words, purity is important to Joseph. Joseph doesn't know that this is the Holy Spirit. What's a righteous man like? Righteous man not only has a love for God's word, not only an obedience to God's word, and we see that in his purity, but a love for people. And so look at verse 19. Not wanting to disgrace her, Joseph planned to send her away secretly plan to protect her dignity. Now at this point, all Mary, or all jo- that is all Joseph could think is, while Mary was gone, you know, she must have shacked up with some guy or something. Something happened. She's now pregnant. I know it wasn't me. He doesn't know how, but notice he doesn't get emotional. He doesn't get some investigation going. We might, have, we might have done that. Huh? I'm going to get to the bottom of this. I'm going to find out. He doesn't do that. And what that tells me is, he, by the way, he isn't suspicious about Mary. He trusts her. He knows her character. He knows this is a godly woman. Something must have happened. He doesn't need to know what He just needs to respond to it in a godly way. He might have been thinking to himself, maybe Mary had a momentary weakness. Who knows? Maybe somebody violated her. Who knows? He's going to keep this thing quiet for Mary. So verse 20, God intervenes. But when Joseph had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Probably started out as a dream but turned into, quickly turned into reality. But this, this really happened to Joseph, and we have no idea what this is like. Who knows? It doesn't really tell us, but it appears Matthew's telling us that it, 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 it was quickly a real thing, okay? Verse 20, look at it. Joseph, this is the angel, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Keep the plan. You need to go through with this. I know you are going to take care of her and everything in a quiet way, but you need to stay married to her. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. 
That's a miracle, right? How? Did you know the Bible said this would happen all the way back in Genesis 3? Thousands of years. See, how many thousands of years? Uh, Probably about 4,000 years before it happened. 4,000 years. Back in Genesis 3, Adam sinned, mankind fell into corruption, and immediately God's plan was made known to us. He said in Genesis, it's verse 15, Genesis 3.15, he said this, a woman with seed would someday come to crush Satan on his head. That is not the woman, but the, the, the seed would crush Satan, would bring a, a crushing blow to Satan on his head. To crush, what, what would he be crushing? Satan's plan to take God down. How would he do that? Well, Satan would give this seed a blow to the heel. The woman's seed would give Satan a crush to the head. In other words, he would do something. He would do something that is the seed to defeat Satan in a final way. cross, right? Now, at this point in the story, we need to ask the question, what is so amazing about this? It's this. Why does it, in Genesis 3.15, keep talking about the woman's seed? Anatomically, physiologically, we know the woman doesn't carry or have seed. That's a male thing. Where did she get the seed? And you got to wait 4,000 years to finally get the answer. Oh, the Holy Spirit. Luke 1, where the angel tells Mary what he does, is God taking history and connecting it 4,000 years before. Boom. Connecting it. Tying the string. Finally, we know how. The Lord put seed in her by the Holy Spirit. That was the plan from the start. So the Spirit starts this, and Matthew 1 really highlights this. He, I mean, he knows what Scripture says about the Spirit of the Messiah's coming, Ezekiel 36, right? The Spirit is uh, going to be put in you and cause you to walk in my statutes. In other words, the Spirit is going to open your eyes and cause you to see what you need to do. It's, you can see the work of the Spirit in John 3. The Spirit goes where He wishes, and so this is a work of the Spirit begun outside of you. You'll know the day because the Spirit will begin His work. And the first part of His work is this, to put the Son into Mary's womb so He can have flesh. That's called the Incarnation. 100% God, 100% man. You say, why is the Incarnation so important? Because man's greatest barrier to God is sin. To get sin out of the way, 
The penalty of it needs to be paid for. We've got to pay for this penalty. Blood sacrifice represents the death that man owes to God for a sin. If you shed your blood, it would take all of it forever to pay for your sins. Jesus had to be human with flesh so he could take your punishment, but he had to be divine so he could face death and be resurrected from it. Why? To prove that he really did pay the penalty for our sins. Listen, only God can do that. So the first work is the spirit, and it was to open Mary and Joseph's eyes to see this incarnation. To see the truth. He knew it would be hard for them to believe. So that leads to the next miracle highlight. Number two, the son's work. And this one goes a little faster. Look at verse 21. The angel is still talking to Joseph. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Gender, boy. You'll bear a son. Name, Jesus. The name Jesus, Joshua is the Hebrew equivalent. It means Yahweh saves. What did Mary, that's the mission here, to save his people. What did Mary and Joseph believe? Mary and Joseph, it was appropriate because Mary and Joseph believed that they were, I mean, they, they believed they were sinners and that they needed atonement. Luke 2, 22, remember after Jesus was born, they go into the temple and they make sacrifice. They knew they were sinners in need of atonement. They did it because the law said to do it. Matthew one twenty one tells us then that Isaiah 53 was about to be fulfilled. What's Isaiah 53 say? That the Lord would come and be despised and forsaken. This is 700 years before he came. He would, and he would bear our griefs and carry our, carry our sorrows and be smitten of God and afflicted and pierced through for our transgression and crushed for our iniquities by a scourging. We would be healed. What kind of healing? Well, healing wherever we were wounded. What kind of wounds do iniquities give? What kind of damage does sin have on a person? What kind of damage does sin have on a, a, a person's mind, on his, on his soul, on his relationships? In other words, Mary and Joseph believed that as people, they were weighed down with sins. They believed Hebrews 9 and 10, that the blood of bulls and goats didn't really take away sins. They believed they needed a savior to come and do this. This had meaning to them when it said, for he will save his people from their sins. It had meaning to them. All of the, that blood stuff of the Old Testament was just shadows for the subs and symbols for the reality. What's the son's work then? To pay for sins. The spirit's work to open eyes so that they could see this really is God doing this. The son's work to pay for sins. 
Point number three, that leads us to point number three, the Father's work. The Father's work. Look at verse 22. Now all this took place, oh what? The Spirit's work to put the Godson into Mary's womb. The message of hope that sins would be dealt with so we could be forgiven. All of that took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and shall name, call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Okay. This is a message back in Isaiah given to a guy, a king named Ahaz. Ahaz was this king and he was concerned because Assyria was on the doorstep and Assyria said, hey, you're going down. Ahaz says, whoa, Isaiah, what is this? Isaiah says, don't worry, here's a sign. King Ahaz's concern was that the His great concern was that the line of David was about to be severed from this. And what he says is it will not happen. That line will be maintained because some virgin down the road will have a child and will have a son. And the son is going to be none other than God himself with us. That's an incredible sign, isn't it? God with us. So here it is, and it is happening. And the angel is telling Joseph, that's incredible. God with us. Definitely a statement about Jesus being God, right? John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. God took on flesh. What's that? What's the, um, it says with us. What does that mean? What is the Father's word? It's in that phrase, with us, God with us. Here's his work. It is to grant you and I access to him. You need to understand that when it says God with us, what it means is you get to be around God and not die. That's for me. Access to his presence. You read the Old Testament, you, you didn't have that. You read Hebrews and the writer makes it clear. This is the thing that God did in salvation. He made access to him open. It's not just that it's 24-7. Sometimes you talk to people and they say, you know, me and God are like this. You know, I pray and he does this thing. I, I do my thing, and but, but he, I know we have an understanding. No, no, no. That's not what God with us means. God with us means that you can go into his presence and not be annihilated because he's so glorious and so holy. In other words, that you and I can come into his presence and our sins won't just be offensive to him. Wouldn't that be good? To not be an offense? know that there's this access this through Jesus Christ you can now come to him why is that big I mean again the Old Testament no man could look upon the face of God and live and that's what Yahweh told Moses in Exodus you remember that 
And that's why he showed him just his back. Now, did Mary and Joseph expect access into the very presence of God? I was thinking about this song. Mary, did you know? And maybe I've told you this before. I have the answer to that. You know the answer, right? The answer is yes. Okay, so that will help you. Next time you hear the song, Mary, did you know? Just say yes. She knew. She knew. She knew because she knew the Old Testament. She knew. She knew. She knew Isaiah 9, 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus said this in John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him access into the very presence of the Father you read in the Old Testament and look at their sacrificial system and their tabernacle and their temple and it was all about separation. They were a nation that symbolized separation. Separation from a holy, pure, glorious, powerful, magnificent God. Always separation. Always separation. Separate from those peoples. Separate from this food. Make a veil. Holy of holies on this side. But you can't go in there. Only the high priest can go in there. It's all separation. Once a year, you know. Even their dietary laws made that statement. Only eat certain foods. Other foods, you'll get unclean. It's all separation. Couldn't enter the courtyard with physical impurity. If you touched a dead animal or person, you'd be unclean. If you touched blood uh, from a menstrual cycle, you were unclean. You name it. They had all these rules and laws and, of, of separation. So when it says God with us, that's huge. There's access to this holy God. Hebrews 4.16, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. You know when your greatest time of need is? When you become aware of your sins and just what they are before a holy God. You realize that God, as a holy God, punishes sin with eternal judgment. That's a time of need. And Joseph and Mary were thrilled to know that Emmanuel was here. Now, did they ever call Jesus Emmanuel? No. Because that's not a title. It's not even a name. Now, listen, that's a description. That's why he translates it, God is here. God has come down. He's he's made a way for you to go to Him. This is happening, Mary and Joseph. That's the Father's work, see? One last one to give to you. The Spirit's work, open eyes to understand. The Son's work, accomplish payment for sin. The Father's work, grant access to Him. Point number four, the believer's response. Did Joseph and Mary believe this? Yeah, look at how they responded. Verse 24. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He was submissive to the word. Just like Mary. Remember Mary, Luke 1? She was submissive to God's word. 138. And so it says he took Mary as his wife. That's the kupa. 
Now, they didn't make this a big old celebration, you know, like um, like they normally would have done. Quietly, they just got married, went down to Bethlehem. Why'd they go to Bethlehem? Rome had this census. They had the register there, Micah 5.2. God said that would happen. Notice another statement of their belief. Joseph kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And that means Joseph didn't have sex with Mary until after Jesus was born. You say, why say that? To show his heart. To show his heart. It was legal. He could have. He he didn't, I believe, to make it clear that this baby is from the Holy Spirit. Look at the more of the obedience. Verse 25, and he called his name Jesus. Remember the angel told Mary, that's what the baby's name is going to be. But it was up to Joseph to name him that. She let him. And he did because the angel told Joseph too. Now, what you get is this. This is a guy who's just obedient to God. Why? Because he loves him. Loves God. All right. Why was it so important to happen this way? For many reasons, but the biggest is this. To give us a picture of our very own salvation. What's our story? This is how it works for us too. What is the Spirit's work to open our eyes? We would never understand. We would never believe without Him doing that. He always initiates salvation. What's the son's work? To pay for our sins. We need an answer for our sins to forgive us and accomplish our righteousness. What's the father's work? To grant you and I access into the very presence of God the Father. That's incredible. What's your response? Well, we saw Mary and Joseph... They were obedient. They were submissive to the word of the Lord. They responded by faith. And that's how we must respond, right? By faith. And that is my hope and prayer for you this Christmas. You would respond to him by faith. And thus have an awesome Christmas. And a merry one too. All right, uh, let me pray and then we're going to sing. Dear Father, we thank you for this time. And uh, here it is, Christmas Day, and we're thinking of you, Lord. We want you to be honored. And we pray, Lord, um, throughout this day as we think about, we open presents maybe, or or we uh, have meals together as families. And we remember all that you have done. All that you've done, Lord, to uh, all the work that you've done to help us see we can have hope and that we can have joy in you. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray.